Our text this morning is going to come from Psalm chapter 84. Psalm 84. It's going to be on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and swallows a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Pecan, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, help us to see what it means to be blessed in you. Would it allow the um, sometimes mundane motions that we go through during worship and our daily devotions and the regular rhythms of our lives? Uh, Father, would your grace that draws us in and sends us out uh, add color and beauty and life to the divine dwelling that we have here on earth that is helping us look forward to our eternal dwelling with you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a situation in your life where it was counting down the days to that thing was over? Where it's like, it's not necessarily like I'm angry that I have to go to it, but I have to do something, and then I'm dreading it, kind of, but then when I show up, it's like, well, actually it wasn't that bad. But similar to this book called um, Gnawing with Tigers. And in this book, he tells a story about this gentleman who had uh, been set up for an arranged marriage. This gentleman's country uh, had arranged marriages. It was the norm. But he had been living in America for some time. He was actually not looking forward to this arranged marriage. He thought it was kind of an odd thing. And so he goes through the process anyway. He shows up by duty. Uh, he gets to the airport. He's kind of begrudgingly holding flowers in his hands, not knowing how in the world this thing's going to work out. If you were, I were in that position, you'd be like, man, I hope the person that comes through that corridor is moderately attractive at some level. Um, there's just some things that like makeup and a nice hairbrush can't do. You know that face first thing in the morning, the morning breath and the smells? There's just something besides that like physical beauty that we need to carry us through a lifelong relationship. So he's standing there not knowing what's going to happen, and then all of a sudden he looks up and he sees his future bride walking down this corridor, and his gloom turned into gladness. Why? She was beautiful. He looked up and he's like, oh my goodness, she's, she's stunning. His, his dullness went to delight. Because he got to see the beauty of the one he was going to spend his life with. 
But that story I share because a lot of times that's like our relationship with the Lord. That's kind of like our relationship as we live our faith in our day-to-day lives. Life gets challenging and painful, and sometimes the beauty of our relationship with God can become dull, particularly when we lose sight of God's face, when we lose sight of God's presence, when we lose sight of how much the Father really loves us in the middle of our daily lives. This begs the question for us, how in the world can we have our relationship with God? How can we have our faith move from dullness to delight? Our text shows us two ways God does this. He draws us in by His grace, and then He sends us out by His grace. Notice it's all about God's grace. God draws us in and lets us see His beauty, fills us with His presence, and then sends us out to other people. And we see God draw us in by His grace. If you look at verses 1 through 4, this is the first section here. Now, for context, this psalm was written by the sons of Korah, and these uh, folks were appointed by David to be the gatekeepers of the temple. Now, a gatekeeper was not the best position to have. Inside of the temple, they would be associated more with custodial staff. They would have been the janitors inside of the temple. But these janitors, these custodial staff, are teaching us about joy that's uh, not tied to our circumstances. They were sharing, you'll see in verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place. My, my soul longs and faints for the glory of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy. You see this language about how they rejoice to be in the place where God was. Now, if you recall back to Exodus, there was a temple or a tabernacle where God would uh, come down and be with his people. Before the temple was built, there was this tabernacle that they tore down and they built up all the time as they traveled. This was where God would meet his people, where they would be close to him. And eventually it was looking forward to the beautiful temple built by Solomon, which you can learn more about in 1 Kings 6. And Solomon built that temple. It was enormous. It was beautiful. It was opulence. It was stunning. It was massive. But the sons of Korah were custodians in this temple, but even in this lowly position, despite all of the beauty around them, they were most impressed by God's presence. Despite all the grandeur that they were around, all of that took a secondary role to being near God. Because when you get to be near God, the beauty of who He is starts to make the things of this world not as beautiful. Not that they're not beautiful, but they become less beautiful when you get to experience God. What is this teaching us right from the start? Being drawn to God and being near God and seeing Him for who He is and His love and mercy and grace makes the things of this world just less impressive. They're not as, they're not ugly, I'm not saying that, but just things become less impressive and that's okay. The psalmist even goes on to say in verse 3, things of this world are so impressive that he's even jealous of the birds because they get to build nests in the 
and they get to be near God day in and day out, singing and doing the things that they were created for. And when you see birds in the text, or you see little details like this in the Bible, it's good to ask, what are we supposed to learn from these birds? What is God, through the sons of Korah, teaching us about these birds? Well, you'll notice there were sparrows and there were swallows mentioned here. Sparrows were incredibly cheap. They were sold for pennies. They were, in the eyes of their culture, pretty worthless. Swallows, on the other hand, were just as worthless, but they were also restless. They were busy. They were never uh, planting roots and growing families. They were always on the move, going, moving, and shaking. So what do we take away from these two birds? The lowly, the exhausted, the restless, the frazzled, the busybodies, those moments when you feel worthless, when we experience this, we can come and find worth, value, significance, rest, and peace just by being close to God. Remember, Jesus even said this in Matthew 10. Here Jesus, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered, even if you're bald. The old pattern baldness unite. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than sparrows. So if God cares for sparrows, how much does how much more does God care for you? We need to ask that question. If God cares for sparrows, how much more does he care for you? You see, when God draws you in, what what happens is that you you regularly experience his beauty, so the dullness of worship starts to take on new life. When God draws you into himself, when you get to see God for who he created you to be, and you see God for how wonderful he is, the dullness of your faith starts to take on new life. It's similar to how art restoration happens. So Michelangelo completed the Sistine Chapel in 1512. And in those days, the only light source that they had were candles. So imagine, after 400 years, candles and soot and dust and dirt that are always going up until the time of restoration in 1999. Now, artists before this restoration, they said two things. Michelangelo was an absolute genius. His work was um, nothing short of a masterpiece, but his coloration was kind of dull. His colors weren't vibrant. He was monochromatic, and he was kind of boring. But in 1999, they set out to restore the Sistine Chapel, and when they finished the restoration, people who had had PhDs about Michelangelo's work had to go back and rewrite their dissertations because they saw Michelangelo's work with all of the beauty and the, beauty and the pinks and the blues and these fragrant colors started to pop and they got to experience Michelangelo, not just as a masterful painter, but also one who uses colors in profound and beautiful ways. In a very similar way, after years of soot and dust 
starts to build into our lives just by living life in a fallen world, just by battling with sin, just by battling with health, after years of buildup in our lives, God's character and goodness can seem kind of meh. It might seem when you're in very hard seasons where it might feel like on paper I know God loves me, but I just don't know if God's for me. The good news for us is that God's word is living and active. The good news is that Jesus rose from the dead. The good news is that through faith, God's spirit dwells in you and connects you with bodies of believers that helps add color to the, to the seasons of dullness and kind of mess that we might walk through as we enjoy and walk with God throughout our lives. And this is why verse 4 comes into play. Verse 4 says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. And what this means is blessed are those who are able to come and worship God. And you see, their worship wasn't predicated on things being perfect. Their lives were very difficult. But despite their difficulty, which we'll see, they were able to come and enjoy God and experience His presence, and that's what we were created for. This is what Sunday worship reminds us of today, church. This is why we start the week hearing the good news that God loves you, that God saves sinners, that God loves the broken and the sick and the needy, and that is us. And this is why we need to set aside a day to start our weeks reminding us of how much we are loved to rest in that truth, to rest in that goodness, and to rest and look around and see even as cold as this building is, even as uh, I mess up words and I'm not as polished and microphones mess up, despite all that, what we are getting right now is a very small taste of heaven. A very small taste of heaven in the midst of this fallen world. And God knows we need this. And that's why He draws us to Himself. If you're anything like me, you're American, and you need to hear this message because we're hardwired for accomplishment. We're hardwired to tackle tasks. We're hardwired for success. And I'm not mad about that. Right? America is a global superpower because we get things done. I'm not mad about that. But because we know that about ourselves, it begs the question, what are you doing for rest? America has less PTO days than any other country, and there's more PTO days that are never used by Americans. And the question is, why? Why aren't you resting? I just got back from vacation. Monday morning, I hit the outlet button and I see a thousand emails. Why doesn't that vacation rest last as soon as you hit your inbox? It's because we need something even more than just a nap. We need something more than just getting away. We need rest for our souls. Because our souls are weary, we're overworked, we're tired. We're involved in so many things in this world, and we oftentimes miss the fact that this is actual spiritual warfare. Don't sleep on the fact that there is a battle taking place right now for your life, 
for your affections, for your calendar, for your heart. Don't miss the fact that Saturday nights and Sunday mornings are some of the most fertile ground for you to be distracted, bottled down with chaos, late night text messages, and mornings full of craziness. I know what it's like on Saturday nights to get no sleep. If you're on my Connect team, every time I preach, I send a message and say, hey, pray for our family because we never sleep Saturday nights before church. That happened last night. I know what it's like on Sunday mornings to go start the car if it doesn't work. I know what it's like to get three or four kids out of the house and you forgot a kid and then another one throws up on you. And then you and your spouse start to fight. And then everything falls apart on Sunday. You're just like, today's just not today. Jesus isn't telling me to go to church. This is bananas. None of this is accidental. None of it's accidental when it's time to go to the community group and you just have the worst work day ever. Where the baseboards are disgusting, where you've burnt the hors d'oeuvres for everybody, where the milk has soured, everything's gone wrong. None of this is accidental. You need to realize there's power in opening God's Word. There's power in singing God's Word. There's power in praying God's Word. There's power in being with other Christians, hearing about the goodness and love of Jesus. There's power in knowing that this world is not our home. There's power in knowing that we live for something greater than just accomplishments. My encouragement for all of us is to break that cycle of exhaustion. Brace that cycle of restlessness and frenzy in your life by encountering the power and person and work of Jesus. Some of you might be like, I'm praying to God, I'm seeking God, I'm doing that, but I'm not feeling like I'm hearing from God. Prayer and singing is our way of talking to God. God's word is how he talks to us. And so we need to make sure that we are speaking to God, but letting God speak to us through his word regularly, live. The Bible tells us that his yoke is easy. His burden is light. There's nothing else to accomplish in your relationship with Jesus. On the cross, he says it's finished. And all he wants you to do is spend time in relationship with him. So my encouragement is to break the cycle of the frenzy by prioritizing worship. By prioritizing reading the Bible. Prioritizing prayer prioritizing community because it's there where your souls will find rest. You need this 100%, but you also have people in your life that need you to be full of the beauty and grace of God. Your spouse needs it. Your co-workers need it. Your clients, your patients, your friends, your neighbors People around you need you to be filled with the goodness and grace of God because we can't give to anybody what we don't have in ourselves. Life is frenzy and crazy. And when we're doing frenzy, crazy life with those around us, if we aren't steadied by the security that we have in Christ, we're just going to be as frazzled and crazy and exhausted as everyone else. And so people around you need you to be full of 
brings us back to our first question. How in the world can we have our relationship with the Lord move from dullness to delight so that we can be filled with delight and share that to other people? Well, first, God draws us in individually by His grace, and then He fills us up, not to leave us uh, full of this grace, but He overflows in us to share that with other people. And we see this last point in verses 5 through 12. And it's here we get a picture for how people were traveling to and from going to the temple to worship God. And we get this detail about the Valley of Baca. And I am from eastern North Carolina, so originally I said Baca, but then I had to listen to smart people read that. But Baca, Baca, potato, potato, call it whatever you want. But the Valley of Baca literally translated is the Valley of Weeping. The Valley of Weeping. So traveling to and from worship was highlighting by a lot of pain. Imagine going on a six-hour car trip without having a tablet in the back seat for your kids to watch Coco Mel. I'm not judging you, right? Sometimes we gotta survive. Imagine though all of your kids sitting on a donkey traveling for six days with all of your supplies on your back, going up mountainous terrain, being hit with the elements. That's massively exhausting, absolutely. If you're not physically weeping, you're emotionally weeping. But you'll notice in the text, throughout this traveling, in this uh, valley of weeping, we see blessing was being brought forth to the land. As God's people were traveling to and from, they were a blessing to other people, like uh, water coming on parched land, the text tells us. They were a blessing not just to the people surrounding them, but also to each other. They would encourage each other and strengthen each other as they were going to and from the temple to worship. And this is a beautiful picture of the Christian life. These traveling Christians, these traveling worshipers, were a blessing to these people that turned that weeping into rejoicing. And the same happens to us. Corporate worship today happens once a week, but we have six other days of the week filled with deadlines, meetings, appointments, feeding children, changing children, and sometimes we hit seasons where we feel like we're in this same valley of the God. This is why we need community. This is why you need other people in your life. Oftentimes there's three tiers of people in our life. We have people that we see in public, then we have people we see in private, then we have people that are in our secret life. Now, when we do life together, you're going to have people in one of those three categories. Not everybody's going to be in your secret life, meaning they know who you are at your core. And it's so necessary in our lives that we have people who know us with all the glitz and glamour removed, who know us for who we are. I call them fuss and spit friends. You need to have those people in your life. Because what happens whenever you can process this life with other people who trust in Jesus? What they do is they say, let me help you. Let me come and love you. Let me help lift your eyes from weeping to see the beauty of Jesus. Let me step in and watch your kids so you can go for a date night. Let me come and help you when you're moving to that new house. 
Let me help you uh, figure out your 30, 60, 90 day plan with this new job. I know what it feels like in all these different seasons. You need people in your life to love you and to help shoulder the burden of this life because you were meant to glorify and enjoy God forever in the context of Christian community with people that you trust. The reason why we need these relationships in our lives is because we're called to glorify God and enjoy Him for, and forever, but we're also called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And sometimes you need community around you to help you love other people because we want to share with other people the exact same blessings that we have been blessed with. And you'll notice in verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 12, you'll see the phrase blessed appear. And in the Old Testament particularly, when you see the same verb repeated, they did this to move the text around a certain topic. And so this text is all about experiencing the blessing of God and what it means to be blessed. Well, what is being blessed? What does it truly mean to be blessed? Sometimes we go through seasons of hardship and pain and loss and we think we're just not blessed by God. And then other times we have a lot of material things we feel like God's blessing it. But if you look through Scripture, typically those things are reversed. Paul wrote a lot of his New Testament letters from prison. These sons of Korah were writing about joy and they were cleaning disgusting premises. So on the surface, God uh, flips the narrative for us and reminds us of what being blessed really is. So what is it to be blessed? To be blessed means to be in a relationship with God. Not just any relationship, but to be in a loving, secure, forgiven, merciful, intimate relationship with God. Because whether or not you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus or not, you're in a relationship with God. But to be blessed is to mean that that relationship isn't broken but it's mended, and that you're close to God, and you get to experience His presence. Being blessed means that sinners can be near God and receive His face towards us without being consumed. It means you've been given a new heart, with new affections, that you are a work in progress, and you can enjoy the things of this world without them consuming and having you. Paul confirms this meaning of blessed in Ephesians 2. He says, That by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, but it is a gift. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So take our text, and take what Paul is teaching, and it's pointing to what? To be truly blessed by God is to be able to enjoy the goodness and beauty of God no matter what season you're going through in life. It's to always be able to come to Him and know that He is for you and He is with you. And in those moments where you feel like He's not, you've got people around you that you love and trust that can bind and heal your wounds and point you back to the Savior and remind you of God's covenant love so that you can share that with other people. What's even better about this grace is that it's not temporary. 
None of this grace is just a means and an end unto itself. This grace and this relationship, this dependence upon other people, is always pointing us to a future reality where we'll get to experience this grace and this fellowship and the presence and beauty of God for all of eternity. Where we're not distracted by anything else, but we use and love everything in all of our relationships to the glory of God. You see, God's grace in our present lives, what it does is it helps anchor our hearts in the storms, in the valley of Bacah, because we always have somewhere to cast our eyes to, and that's knowing that this isn't my home. No matter what you're going through, even if it ends up being terminal and fatal, you still get to open your eyes into eternity and see the beauty of your Savior face to face. And no one can snatch you out of his hand. Nothing on earth can snatch you out of his hand. And that eternal security helps put everything on earth into perspective. And I know what it's like to be in those seasons and forget that. I know what it's like to try to manufacture happiness on your own for the sake of other people. If you're in that place, yes, turn to Jesus, but turn to your friends that love Jesus. Ask for help. You're not meant to walk through the valley of weeping alone. Some of you have come out of that. Some of you might be in a beautiful season. Some of you starting today might enter into that season. We don't know, but we do know one thing is for sure. One day we're going to meet our Savior face to face. Enjoy Him while we can, because it's prepping us for our future home. Jesus confirms this again in John 3, 16. Don't miss this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Everything we experience with the goodness of God is always anchoring and building in our lives Seasons of remembering in God's grace in this uh, kind of bank or storage of God's grace for when we go through hard times. And it's always connecting us with eternity. He says, for God didn't send his own son into the world to condemn it, but in order that we might be saved through him. Our eternal security helps us look at the things of this world with a fresh perspective. It helps us to love the unlovable, to forgive even the greatest pains, because we know we have a future that's secured for us that nothing in this world is ever going to replace or replicate. I'll close with a story about Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria uh, once attended a service at St. Paul's Cathedral, and she was listening to a sermon, and she was struck with this question. She looked to her chaplain, and she said, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal security? And y'all know I love testing out my accents, but I didn't do it at that time. I really wanted to. Abby was like, don't do it. And I trust her. Listen to what the chaplain said. His answer was, he knew no way that one could be absolutely sure of eternal security in Jesus. This was a huge incident in your day. This made it all the way to the court news, and it came to the notice of a minister by the name of John Townsend. After reading the story of Queen Victoria's question and the terrible answer that she received, he prayed and sent the following note. It'll be on our screen. It says, To Her Gracious Majesty, 
Our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects, with trembling hands but heart-filled love, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now for our eternal life and the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of Scripture. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10, 9 through 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. After sending this, about two weeks later, he got this response. To Don, John Townsend, I've carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home on which he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Sign, Victoria Guelph. Now, after this incident happened, after Queen Victoria experienced this assurance of eternal security, she would carry around this book that she would gladly hand to other people. And listen to the title of this book, Safety certainty, and enjoyment. And she shared that regularly. And what Queen Victoria found even then is what we can find through Christ today. That no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, you can rejoice just like Queen Victoria did and just like the sons of Korah are rejoicing in our text. That a day in Christ's courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. How does that apply to us? There's a remarkable thing that happens whenever we start to open God's Word. There's a remarkable experience that starts to take place when you hear that you are more sinful than you could ever imagine, and that God's grace is greater than you could ever imagine. Something starts to change moment by moment when you open God's Word. This word is alive and active, not because the ink jumps into our hearts, but God's Spirit takes these words given to us, applies them to our hearts, and what that does is it makes us firm and sure of what our future is, and that future changes our present circumstances, that no matter the joy, the pain, the hardship, or uncertainty you will experience in this life, you have a divine dwelling with the creator of all things who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, who never lets anything happen to you that hasn't already passed through nail-pierced hands. I say that probably once a month to you all because we need to hear it. I need to hear it. This faith that we read about doesn't just build you up for today, but it sustains you. It doesn't just get you into heaven, but it gives you the firmness to be able to look at the frenzy of this life and says, I am more than a conqueror because of him who loves me. Look around you, church. These are the people that God's put in your life to help love you and to shepherd you and to care for you because life's not always going to be predictable and manageable. When life hits the fan, look around. 
Welcome other people into your life. Build relationships, but have them grounded in the finished work of Christ for you. Because it's that grace that draws you in, builds you up, and sends you out. Not just today, but for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, your word uh, is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And Jesus, you talk a lot about the narrow road that leads to salvation and the, the wide road that leads to uh, a lot of pain and a lot of people are following that path. And Father, we oftentimes beg for wisdom to know the right thing to do. And Father, but we often fail to ask, give me the wisdom to be able to know which door you're opening and closing. Give me wisdom to actually see what you're doing, because a lot of times you are clear, but the dullness of our own ego and desires uh, sometimes clouds out the very clear direction you have for us. Help us to listen to good witnesses of the faith around us. Help us to open our lives and let people in. Not everyone, Father, but help us to, to build good, trusting relationships so that you can use not just your word and prayer and Sunday mornings, but good, loving Christian fellowship around us to help connect us with you, not just for today, but for all eternity. We pray these things in your risen name.